Good evening, everyone. We've now reached the Q&A portion of uh, tonight's entertainment. I should say before we start that the, um, the film's still a month away from release in the UK, but it's actually just opened in the United States over the weekend where it became, uh, by some distance, the most successful uh, animated uh, film uh, opening weekend of all time. I think it made 180 million uh, over the last three days, which is extraordinary. Um, I think that pretty decisively answers the question as to whether there is an appetite for another Incredibles film this perhaps been enriched by the rise of superhero films in the interim uh, since the first one was released, although I'm not entirely convinced this is a superhero film in the sense in which we've come to understand it. To discuss that uh, and much more, please welcome to the stage uh, the film's two producers, Nicole Parody Grindle and John Walker, and the writer and director of Incredibles 2, Brad Bird. Congratulations all on, on the film. Uh, Thanks. Brad, I want to start by asking you, I couldn't believe that it had been 14 years since the first Incredibles film was released. And in the interim... As, what have as, we been doing? We <laughs> couldn't believe it either. <laughs> in the interim, so much has changed around people's understanding of superheroes on screen, expectations for what these characters should be doing. Uh, how did that inform the, the writing? I mean, from the very kind of beginning of this project to, through to, to, to the completed version of the film. Well, all it did was make me kind of unenthusiastic, to be honest. It just, uh, uh, you know, these things start years in advance, and I thought at the time that there were too many superhero films, and I thought, you know, a couple of years from now, when people are completely sick of this, I'll be here going, hey, how about a new superhero film? <laughs> you know, it's just what you want, isn't it? And everybody, <laughs> you know. But then it didn't last very long before I remembered that um, what attracted me to the idea in the first place was more that it was about families through the... Uh, lenses of the superheroes than it was a s film about superheroes. So then I got enthusiastic again because families to me uh, are, is it's an infinite subject. And these were characters you created in the 1990s, right? I mean, a long time even before yeah. the film was released. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. Oh my God. They <laughs> 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 haven't aged a bit. Nicole, you. They haven't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nicole, you produced a short for Pixar called Sanji's Super Team, which was released in front of uh, The Good Dinosaur. Yes, I did. And the way in which that film kind of explored superheroics, it was like they, they weren't part of a, a craze necessarily, but some of this kind of cultural necessity maybe. And I wondered if that affected your thinking about you know, what The Incredibles stood for. And, um, oh, what an interesting question. Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> oh, good, okay. But this um, is early in the tour, so they're still... Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it's... It's very similar, really. I mean, in both films, the superpowers are an extension of who those characters are. In Sanjay's super team, it's an extension of how uh, Sanjay is experiencing this uh, understanding of his culture and what these deities mean to his father. Um, so it, it is similarly about family and family relationship. That's the inspiration for him in that film. And in, in our film, uh, the superpowers are an extension of who those characters are in the family. Um, so, uh, as opposed to just gratuitous superpowers, you know, not to cast aspersions against other films, um, but uh, I think that it, both films uh, are very compelling for that reason. You feel that the emotional underpinning of what those characters are doing in the moment. John, I'd like to talk to you about the 
technology in, in that so much has advanced in, in animation, even since your last, because you've been producing films with, uh, with, with Brad since The Iron Giant, right? But, but since um, Ratatouille, there's been this enormous change in what Pixar software can actually render, what it's capable of producing. Well, and during the, on the first film, the, everything that we wanted to do Pixar had really never done before. We knew the first time. No we, one. Had done. Yeah, yeah. We, there no were no, you know, yeah. a, a fully human cast of characters. You know, the long hair, long wet hair, lots of clothing, all this stuff, which are, you know, these almost magical computer programs that figure all this stuff out on an ongoing basis. And and what, what, when we brought the film to to Pixar and showed it to, you know, when we'd done all the story reels, the the response was. Everybody was excited, but nobody knew how to do it. So it was constantly, well, yeah, we'll figure that out as we go along. <laughs> yeah, and they so were very pale when they came out <laughs> yeah, of the story reel screening. Yeah. And so, just a minute, just a minute. Yeah, we'll, right, figure we'll, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. Everything was a science project. It was like, well, we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to do that. And on this film, we brought the same challenges, and they said, oh, yeah, we can do that. How much time and money have you got? <laughs> so it's, it's really the, those... That, those days are over for computer animation. We can do pretty much anything. If you can dream it up, we can do it. It just okay. depends on how much time you've got. So, yeah. Yeah. so given the, the, that kind of money helps too. Money, yeah. yeah, I need some money. <laughs> Especially when you don't have time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> given that last time you had that, that really dynamic, modernist look to the film, that was, I suppose, working hand in hand with technological limitations at the time because characters could be more stylized. Um, but, well, we wanted the characters to be stylized. That was part of the idea is that a lot of people were doing um, computer characters that, to me, to my eyes, had unnecessary detail and were kind of disturbing because of it. They had pores in their skin, and you got into these close-ups, and you're just like, <laughs> you know? Um, I, did, I thought it was ugly, <laughs> and I felt like there was a beautiful simplicity to hand-drawn films and that I wanted to transfer that kind of simplicity to CG animation. So if you look at The Incredibles, they have normal detailed eyes, but the further you get away from the eyes, the more simplified the stuff gets. So their ears don't even have ear canals. They're just like uh, symbols for ears. And uh, uh, I felt like caricature needed to migrate into the way humans were depicted, even on the first film. So in that case, did the technological advancement since then, was, was the extra possibilities those opened up, was it more to do with, with background and scene setting? I mean, this, is, this incredible sequence in this film where you have the family arrive at that kind of John Lautner-esque villa, <laughs> and the film just goes, all right, we're just going to stop for a few minutes and just luxuriate in this house and just yeah, explore yeah, all yeah. these different kind of, you know, soft furnishing details and everything. Right. Was that really where the new, the new technology sort of helped? Uh, the new technology helped everywhere. Um, it's not as easy to talk about as it used to be because um, the medium is more matured. When, when we were doing the first film, every film that came out of Pixar had something new and simple that could be discussed. You know, with monsters, it was, we can do blue fur. You know, and everybody was, oh, blue fur, Yay. that eluded us, now we can do blue fur. And then with Nemo, it's like, can you do light that shifts underwater and, and uh, subsurface scattering on the, on the fish's scales, uh, which means light penetrating and, and refracting. So it's like, you can do that, you know, yay. And with us, it was humans doing them in a way that was, uh, they could hold a whole movie. Um, after that, uh, as it gets better and better, 
the breakthroughs keep happening, but they're smaller, subtler de uh, uh, details. And with this film, the one for me that I most appreciated was we can do uh, renderings, low res, low resolution renderings of a frame and see it right away. So what it looks like is a grainy uh, a piece of film. There's a lot of grain on it, but all the lighting is there. And we can see that immediately, whereas in the old days, you would, the, the lighting people would set up a shot, and it would be a day or two before you could see what you were even doing. So you know, once you see what you do, you oh, and I need to change this and that. And that really slowed down the process and made it kind of um, you know, cumbersome. And all of that stuff now has been worked out very well. So artists can get immediate results and that changes how they work. Did that change, I mean, specifically in terms of the action sequences? And I want to, to talk about the action sequence with the, um, the motorcycle runaway train pursuit, which I just sure. think is, is, you know, in, in terms of blocking shot choices, it's just more kind of elegant and refined than, than you know, almost any live action, action sequence. Ah, thank you. For, for mm. years and years. Mm. Um, Given that sort of readiness of the technology to show you things straight away, does that change how you would stage something like that? No, uh, um, I, I, I would like to tell you that it does, but it doesn't. You know, um, I think I have storyboarded. I, I have done that before. I've done it for things that I've worked on. I've done it for my own work where I actually do the drawings. And I've studied the hell out of a lot of the guys that, that you know, are mentioned out in this hallway here. David Lean was a, a killer at staging things beautifully and cleanly and, and in a way that was always interesting. And so uh, Hitchcock staged things beautifully. And so there were so many people to uh, study. And uh, you know, when it comes time to doing something like this, um, I'm always trying to move things along, but do so in a way where you always know where you are and, and, and uh, can understand how things are changing. A lot of people um, stage live action very haphazardly, uh, uh, action scenes. And so the audience kind of knows what's going on, but uh, they often don't know is that person that they're fighting three feet from them or in the next room or whatever. And there are certain people that can move quickly and always keep you knowing where everything is. And that adds to your excitement because you understand. And, and so, um, you know, uh, it doesn't really change the, pro the, the film language part is, is, is the same. It's, it's the, the tools that, that either help or hinder how you use it. I want to open this to, to questions from the floor. If you do have a question, please raise your hand. And we've got two uh, roving mics. Uh, let's, let's start there uh, with the hand up there, thanks. Um, thank you so much for um, just an enlightening movie. I mean, it's so good because I just concentrated on the story. I mean, the animation is so incredible. Oh, I just wanted you. to ask you about the um, evolution of the story from, because it's been 14 years, and you talked earlier on about your resistance. I mean, how many drafts of this script did you go through? Were there things that you found. Oh my God, you're, you're making me go through it again. <laughs> uh, a lot on this film, uh, more than any film I've done so far. And a part of it was that we had a year taken away from our schedule. And these films are already hard to make. And uh, once they did that, because Toy Story 4 needed a little more time to come together, then we moved up into Toy Story 4. We were supposed to come out a year from now. And uh, uh, you know we had to all recalibrate all our timers, and that meant if uh, I had the core idea of the role switch, where Helen gets the assignment rather than Bob, and then Bob stays at home, 
Uh, I had that, you know, 14 years ago when we were uh, publicizing the first film. And I liked that idea, and I was committed to that. I also knew I had the unexploded bomb of Jack-Jack, which the audience <laughs> knew he had multiple powers, but the Parr family did not. So I thought, let's save that to Bob being put in charge of things at home and then make it 10 times harder for him. And those two parts I was committed to. But all of the other stuff, the superhero plot with the villain and all that, um, that changed all the time. And, and the version that I pitched when I finally felt like I had a complete story and everybody went, great, you know, green light, we're going to make it. These guys came on. We all started working. Um, that didn't work out, actually. And I had to bail on that particular storyline, which involved artificial intelligence, and go to another storyline. And then that part of that sort of worked. I mean, it was really a fun idea that could possibly work in another context, but it didn't. the stakes weren't high enough for the family. So I kept elements of that and went on to another one. And, and you know, we had a, a, a lot of uh, people arguing about what's the best way to go, and it was just kind of steering through all of that. I think it's fascinating that you have this villain, uh, the, the screen slaver, where there's, there's a very sort of obvious contemporary resonance that you don't go for because you know the idea that everyone's addicted to mobile phone screens, this kind of personal interaction with them. And instead, you go for this outer limits-style mass hypnosis. Uh, I mean, was, was that an idea that you were always going to ground things in, in that kind of mid-century look that, uh, with AI, or did, did, was the AI thing? Yeah, I mean, the world of The Incredibles is sort of an alternate 60s futurism, early 60s futurism. And that, you know, I was, you know, we were committed to. That's the universe of those characters. Um, but uh, the screen slaver thing would have worked out great if everybody had cell phones in their pockets. But I felt like I wanted to stay where we were in the first film, the universe. They don't have those devices. When I was a kid, people, my parents said, hey, you're, you're spending too much time watching TV. I mean, so we were still looking at screens maybe too much when we were kids. So it seemed like it would work anyway. Um, but sure, the name is, is, a, is a play on, you know, the stuff they have to keep your screens alive on your computers. <laughs> Another question. Um, is, uh, yep, so just in the middle there and, uh, oh, sorry, okay, so yep, let's, let's go there and then we'll come down next. Uh, first of all, just wanted to say that uh, I saw the first film when I was seven, uh, and it, oh, man. So you make back me today feel old. Was, uh, was absolutely amazing. But basically, Thanks. I've got the same question now as I did 14 years ago, which is, oh, what's oh. up with the Underminer? What? what? What's what? up with the Underminer? Where is he? What's, uh, he got away with it. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you notice the financial crisis? That happens. Fair enough. You've thought about it more than me, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, yep, down at the front. Why was the baby acting so weird? Why was the baby acting so weird? Oh. Why is he acting weird? Um, I, you know, I'm not quite sure. I think he's just starting to feel uh, his powers. It reminds me of uh, my own children. Um, when, you first, uh, when you first have uh, babies, they, they're tiny and they kind of stay put and their poops are not too bad and everything's <laughs> going to be nice. This is going to be easy being a parent. And then they get mobile. Mm. 
and they start being able to do things and put their hands on stoves and you know, possibly in sockets with forks and, and you're in this constant state of anxiety of what is the baby gonna do? And so that's kind of what we were trying to do in a sort of a superhero version of that. And babies get quite angry when they don't get what they want. Right. right. So you yep. can imagine them bursting into flames. <laughs> Given that sequence is so sort of beautifully self-contained, was that an idea that came separately to the, the, the main Which, which sequence? Are oh, the Jack-Jack versus the raccoon? Uh, yeah, okay. Teddy Newton, who is one of our top uh, uh, designers on the first film, had this hilarious idea. Um, I, I kind of originally designed Jack-Jack uh, and the babysitter to be something I could cut to if the rest of the story uh, got slow. And, uh, but when we fleshed it out, the rest of the story never got slow. It, it just was like, and uh, so I ended up doing that uh, part with Jack-Jack uh, and the Babysitter is a little short that went out with the Blu-ray and the DVD. Um, but he, uh, Teddy Newton, had this idea that was very inappropriate <laughs> of uh, him uh, fighting a group of raccoons. Yeah, whole gang. It was yeah. a gang who were, who were just, you know, and they were more like street thugs. They yeah. kind of looked at him and kind of shoved him, <laughs> you know, and uh, he, they ended up going to the bottom of the pool, and I mean, it went crazy. Yeah. Um, and this idea, for some strange reason, just cracked me up. I just thought it was the best idea. And um, it was sad for me when we didn't get to put it in the first film, but, but on my wish list, if we did another one, was I'm going to get that ra raccoon fight in this movie. Yeah, so there it is. And that, it ended up being the first scene that we animated. Because yeah. um, it had to be we in We knew any it was going to be in the movie, yeah. no yes. matter what. Just like that. Sometimes we thought it might be the only thing in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but we thought, it that, well, it'd be short, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. You, you spoke a bit about the influence of hand-drawn on these characters, and that sequences, so, I mean, that could be like a Bugs Bunny film, mm. you know, from yeah. decades and decades ago. Uh, what influence does Handron play in the, the, the sort of day-to-day -day production of a sequence like that? Well, it actually has a huge influence. Um, uh, one of our uh, most uh, uh, brilliant animators who I've worked with on everything I've done except for The Simpsons, uh, his name is Tony Fuccelli, and his uh, son actually uh, does all the Jack-Jack sounds from, and they were recorded 14 years ago for the original film, but but there they were so many of them, and they were so great. But he uh, doesn't really animate very easily on the computer. He is an excellent hand-drawn animator, and uh, we have this process where Tony and some others, uh, Bolem, Boshiba, uh, go over um, frames with drawings and correct, you know, maybe the, this shoulder should go forward a little bit here, maybe, and, and so, and then they adjust the CG to fit those alterations. So even though you don't see it on the screen, hand-drawn animation is very al uh, alive and well in our process. Sorry, uh, in, in, in the middle there, we're going to come to you earlier, and then we'll go up to, to you, yeah, and then one back. Oh, hello. This is a question for Brad. I was wondering what it's like directing uh, animators in 3D as opposed to 2D animators like on, say, The Iron Giant. Uh, it's very much the same. I'm still looking for poses that um, uh, read easily and attitudes that, that seem in character. Um, I mean, if I were to, to shoot a picture of this audience right now, um, all of you are doing exactly the same thing in that you are all sitting down, facing forward, watching us here. 
But if I were to isolate every single one of you, there's a person over here who's really bored. There's another person <laughs> over here who's kind of uh, uh, wondering what the hell this is all about. Uh, there's a group of people there that are actually very happy they came. And there's uh, uh, different levels of interest. Everyone is sitting in their own unique way. And um, uh, because everyone is an individual. And, and that, the differences between people is what character animation is all about, dialing into that. And when I write dialogue, I try to use different words for different characters because they don't all, you know, some screenwriters, they're, they're good at plot and stuff, but their characters all sound like the same person. And um, actors can help, but they can't do it all. So E uses words that, that uh, Dash would never use. Dash uses words that dad would never use. And, and that is also true of the way people move, the way they sit, the way they comport themselves. And so animators, that's where they live. They watch stuff like this. See, she's staring at the ceiling right now. <laughs> and that's a cool pose. That's a great, you know, I know I'm going to be leaving here soon. <laughs> you know, and it's fine. It's yeah. cool. You know, that's what life is about. It's the illusion of life. Okay, so there, and then. So for the original, Edna was my favorite part. And again, she is just a show stealer. What was the hardest part of just creating her? You know? Uh, she, you know, it started with um, when I read uh, comic books with superheroes, and I, I don't read, I don't know them nearly as well as people assume that I do. I'm actually kind of a secondhand superhero person. I get it from movies and television more than I do comic books. But I read a few, and the least convincing part for me of all these origin stories of superheroes is the part where it shows the hero sewing in the basement. And, and it's like, no, come on, you know, he's not going to be doing that, you know? Um, uh, and so I, I like that everyone had cool costumes, but I didn't believe that each person would be sewing their costumes because they would basically be really crappy costumes <laughs> for most people. Um, so I thought if there were a world of superheroes, there would be a designer for superheroes. And that's where E came from. Okay, and last question. What gave you the idea of the underminer? <laughs> what? It gave what? you the idea of the underminer. Uh, you know, I think Mark Andrews had the original drawing of that. And he was our story supervisor on the first Incredibles. And he's a very uh, active guy who kind of speaks loudly <laughs> and kind of forces you to pay attention whenever he enters the room. And he was kind of like, you know what you need to do. You know, have a, have a guy come in and he's, he drills up through the, the middle of the the soccer field. And I said, you can't drive in the middle of the soccer field, you know. How about if it's next door in the parking lot or something like that? So it seems less planned. And I went, all right, that's close enough. And so uh, uh, we uh, uh, did that. I fought him for a while. I wanted a different ending. And I couldn't come up with a better one than, than what he had. And so. Uh, I gave him the name, The Underminer, which I thought was funny because it's about anybody who kind of wrecks it for other people. <laughs> and, uh, 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 you know, we took it from there. Uh, but the, another funny thing is uh, when I came to Pixar, um, they had a rule that John Ratzenberger, who did uh, uh, Ham, 
the, the piggy bank in Toy Story movies. He also did the P.T. Flea in Bugs Life. Um, it became a rule that you had to use him in, in each film. And, and you know, I'm an individual, and I'm, I wasn't there for those films, so my attitude was like, I don't have to do that. I'm different. I'm going to be the guy who doesn't do it. And then, and then so I'm making the film, and, and pretty soon I'm thinking, geez, every film before ours has been a success. Yes. Do I, yeah. do He's I known really as our want to mess with whatever that do is? Do I really want to undermine this concept? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then I thought, OK, I'll, I'll trick people who are paying attention to that and I will make it the last character we introduce in the film. So that if anybody's paying attention, which is not that many people, but uh, if anybody's saying, where the heck is John Ratzenberger, uh, they would have to wait to the last second of The Incredibles, and then he pops out of the ground and goes, behold! You know, so it was fun to do that. It was fun also because he became one of the first voices in this right. film. Yeah. 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 And that is unfortunately the very end of tonight's Q&A, but thank you very much to the entire thank panel. Thank you. Uh,